Hey there, this is Kevin Ferguson, Bullseye's producer. I want to say something really quick to our podcast listeners before we kick off the show. Hey, do you support your local public radio station? Giving Tuesday and the holidays are all great times to do it. And here's why. When you support a station, that station invests in local journalism and NPR programming. NPR turns that investment into radio and podcasts you love. So when you support your public radio station, it helps us keep this podcast going and it helps NPR create new ones. Want to keep these stories and conversations going? Donate now to your station to keep the programs you love on the air. Visit donate.npr.org slash bullseye to give, then share why you gave with hashtag why public radio. Again, that's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So we record every episode of Bullseye at MaximumFun.org's world headquarters in L.A. It's right next to MacArthur Park, but if you go a mile, maybe even half a mile down Wilshire Boulevard, you end up in Koreatown in Los Angeles. And for real, you guys, it is an incredible place to eat. I mean, all kinds of barbecue, cold noodles, tofu soup, blood sausages. There's a, even a Korean pizza place. Big shout out to all my people over there at Mr. Pizza Factory. And I guess you could say that Korean food is kind of having a, a moment nationally in the United States now. Casual Korean barbecue places are popping up in malls. You can buy a bowl of bibimbap at Trader Joe's now. But that wasn't always the case. Margaret Cho, the comedian is the child of two Korean immigrants. And she remembers that when she was growing up in San Francisco and she was going to school, Korean food wasn't, wasn't what she wanted to have. She always kind of dreaded her lunch break. Mm-hmm. Because Korean food is, is most of the cooking, a lot of it is fermentation. So you have a lot of funk yeah, it's got some out. stank on it. There's yeah, no doubt about that. Definitely. And and that's part of the beauty and the, the deliciousness of it. But also when you're a kid and you just want to fit in and you want to have ding-dongs and ho-hos and Twinkies and and a, a soda wrapped in an aluminum foil, you know, that the, you, it's impossible to trade dried squid. You just can't <laughs> trade it. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Margaret Cho more about growing up in San Francisco under the care and tutelage of gay men. The Castro scene in the 1980s made her feel more comfortable discovering her own identity. The culture that was them just coming from all these small towns and going to San Francisco and New York and suddenly being allowed to be themselves, not only is it great to be gay, it's phenomenal. Then I'll talk with Lisa Hanawalt. She designed the animated series BoJack Horseman. It's a talking animal show, and she gets all kinds of feedback about it. And it turns out that if you design the characters on a show about talking animals, the feedback comes like a fire hose. The animals in people clothes are too realistic, they say. The animals in people clothes are not realistic enough, they say. She got one incredibly inflamed letter from a person whose beef was that she needed to put tails on the horses. It, I mean, it was amusing because it was so entitled. It was just like, no, I really do think that for the betterment of the show, you should go back into animation and add in tails and then re-release the show. Then, one of my favorite basketball players, 
the guy who I kind of think of as the anti-Michael Jordan. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We've got a couple of my favorite recent Bullseye interviews this week. First up, Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho is a lot of different things, and shy isn't one of them. She's made a career of searing and revealing comedy. Lately, she's been, um, well, let's see, she's been performing on the street to raise money for the homeless. She's been marrying couples on stage. She just launched a huge international tour of stand-up called Fresh Off the Bloat, kicked off last week in Scotland. She's also a singer-songwriter. When we talked last year, she just recorded her second full-length album, American Myth. It's a little bit from the record. The song is called We So Worry, and it features her parents in the chorus. Don't be sad. I want to move to L.A. It's hard and it's scary. They'll give me jobs for pay. I don't want to leave you, but there's no other way. I have to go, cause I'm gonna be a star someday. Oh, we're so worried about you. Oh, we don't know what to do. You so little how you grew, mommy and daddy. We worry about you. Margaret Cho, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Were you ever... Um, embarrassed of your parents as a kid? Oh, yes, all the time, because they uh, were very um, paranoid about being Korean. My father was deported in 1970, and uh, so during the period of we were trying to get him back into the country, it was really uh, important for us to not speak Korean, us meaning the kids. So they would speak to us in Korean, we'd have to answer in English. And um, having a Korean accent was really considered the most shameful thing because it marked you as a foreigner. So it was really terrifying. And um, so there was a lot of um, the, our foreignness that my parents also rejected, which um, made me embarrassed of the things that they couldn't fully get rid of, like those accents and, and this sort of smell in our house. <laughs> those kinds of things. That's something I feel like I've heard from a lot of people that, smell is like a particularly touchy part of the immigrant experience, especially the thing that you always hear is opening your lunchbox at school. Mm-hmm. Because Korean food is is most of the cooking. A lot of it is fermentation. So you have a lot of funk. Yeah, it's got out. some stank on it. There's yeah, no doubt about that. Definitely. And, and that's part of the beauty and the, the deliciousness of it. But also when you're a kid and you just want to fit in and you want to have ding-dongs and ho-hos and Twinkies and and a, a soda wrapped in an aluminum foil, you know, that the, you, it's impossible to trade dried squid. You just can't <laughs> trade it. I uh, I lived, we're, we're right adjacent to where I used to live when I moved to Los Angeles in Koreatown. I lived in a big apartment building that was maybe, I would say, half first-generation recent Korean immigrants, like mostly like young adults, kind of upwardly mobile type folks. Mm-hmm. And just once in a while, someone would be cooking, mm-hmm. and it would just blast the yeah. whole floor, just pa-pow. Yeah. 
it's um, alarming sometimes, <laughs> the smell. But when you're used to it, you almost don't smell it. And then when you uh, see other people experiencing it, it's like, it, you know, as a kid, it was very shocking. Like, I, I felt really bad bringing people over to my house or, like, white kids would come over for a sleepover. And I was de- deeply ashamed. <laughs> when your dad got deported, were you, you were like a baby or a toddler, right? Yeah, I was I was born in 1968, so I was just just a, a tiny kid. How long was he out of the country? He was back and forth until about 1973 and then finally gained citizenship and then it was all pretty legit. But then I was the only one at that time to have been born in America. So I had to do all of the phone calls to doctors or I had to talk to any kind of mechanic or any... any and it, that's a, a real lot of pressure for a real little kid to have to be almost like the legal representation of the whole family. It was really scary. I mean, I was scared when I was a kid just to talk on the phone. That right. was very intimidating to me. The idea of being responsible for something while I was doing it mm-hmm. is... To, yeah. <laughs> have to do, deal with, you know, like your grandparents' medication or to call a pharmacy or to call to make appointments for your whole family. It was it was really, it was a lot. Were there things about your family life that when you were, you know, at school or not with your parents that you were proud and excited about? Um, I think that probably at that time, the fact that my parents were still married, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, divorce was such a huge thing for most families. And so most of my friends were with one parent, or they would go back and forth between parents, or they had stepfathers or, you know, stepmothers, very exotic arrangements, or like my mother's boyfriend, these kinds of things. And to me, that was really terrible, like that they had to have these like broken families. And my mother's always very judgmental, like, oh, don't talk to them, they divorce. So I think like the fact that we had a very intact family unit that was also inclusive of the entire extended family too, I think was kind of an impressive brag. <laughs> Were people impressed by it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> no. But they, that was like there was like lax parenting in the seventies and eighties. I remember kids like going to kids' houses. They had water beds, and like you could buy cigarettes from their mom for ten cents. <laughs> like, it's so crazy. It's really crazy now to think about. Or you you would get like somebody like somebody's parent would buy them beer. That's crazy to me. Like that's I don't know. I think I think buying kids beer is significantly less crazy than selling your own children cigarettes. Yeah, like that's really nuts. I think the idea of off, uh, like running a kind of prison canteen in your own home. <laughs> well, I sort of understand it in a l- little bit. Like, let me. I know you're going to do this anyway, so let me witness how much you're going to smoke. Let me witness what you'll do. So if you buy your kids beer and they stay in the house, it's sort of like a payment. Like, okay, now that you're sharing the secretive part of yourself, I let you do it, but I'm going to be a part of it as well so you don't get in trouble. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Margaret Cho. I want to play this clip, and I'm I'm sorry to sort of spring this on you, um, uh, but it's, a, it's important to me. So this is a video from local television in San Francisco in the, I think I'm going to say Mm -hmm. mid-80s, mid to late 80s. And uh, it's narrated by a stand-up comedian and uh, San Franciscan, or actually uh, Oaklander, uh, Aisha Tyler. Mm -hmm. And so we'll hear Aisha Tyler narrating, and then we will hear you okay, (laughs) and Sam Rockwell. Oh, yes, yes. Batwing Lubricant is the name of our improv troupe. 
Sam and Margaret are really close friends of mine. They're both real cool and talented. There's a suggestion from the audience that their two ex-lovers meet again girlfriend. by accident on an ocean liner. Well, how about that? Herschel? Hey, you got a... You got a, an ethnic change, didn't you? Yeah! You're Chinese now! Herschel, oh my God! It's most of this was unfit for mature audiences, but it was pretty right on for us. You know, I got one hanging off my... My God? Yeah. She's snack. She's snacky-wacky. You remember? Yeah. Hey, how about this? Yeah, what? Mutant Ninja Yuppies and Bobby Verdon's sacrificial habitat dance. Oh, it's been so long. I love that. I love that. That's my comedy partner and my friend, Aisha. That's part of a documentary called Sota Jam Box, which was School of the Arts. And it was an overview of our school, which we, we weren't there for very much longer after that. But uh, it's so cute. I, I think we were trying to be um, uh, maybe like a stiller and mirror, like a child <laughs> stiller and mirror or something. It's really adorable. What was it like for you when, um, you know, you became a comedian as a teenager at the absolute height of stand-up comedy in America? I mean, I think we've gotten to, you, we've returned to some of that height now, but mm-hmm. um, at the absolute height of stand-up comedy in America, what was it like for you five and eight years later in the, as we got into the 90s and everyone appearing on Evening at the Improv, you know, once a month disappeared? Yeah. It was, well, it was okay for me because I sort of went beyond that. That was the era of stand-up comics being turned into sitcoms. And so you had uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who who helped me a lot also in the initial years and, and continues to, and uh, Roseanne and Tim Allen, these people who were taking their comedy and making it a sitcom. So I was sort of purchased for that. And so I was able to kind of go beyond when all of those TV shows like Evening at the Improv and Comic Strip Live went away, I was still able to do television then. I want to play a clip from your most recent stand-up special, which is called uh, Psycho or Psycho. Is there a correct pronunciation? Well, the title, the full title is There's No I in Team, But There Is a Cho in Psycho. So actually both <laughs> are correct. Okay, so uh, you're talking a little bit about um, your experiences uh, on the sitcom American Girl, which was a sitcom that you got earlier, early mm-hmm. in your career and was the first Asian-American family sitcom yes. in the United States. And the new show, Fresh Off the Boat, which you consulted a little bit on, yeah. um, just kind of lent a hand on uh, as, as necessary, an experienced ear. <laughs> just advice for Eddie Huang, you yeah. know, not an official position at all. But now I'm so grateful that the show is so beautiful and well-liked and and very excitingly getting another season two. So it's like season three now. So this is cool. Let's take a listen. I, I, I actually created the first Asian-American family TV show. <laughs> 20 years ago. And I f***ed it up so badly. They had to wait for an entire generation of Asian Americans to be born and grow up to Nielsen voting age. (laughs) So now it's on TV and um, Eddie Huang is the creator of the show and it's it's, it's a real honor because 
when he started the development process, he reached out to me because he knew that I was the only person in the entire galaxy who understood what it was like to create an Asian-American family show with ABC. So he found me. He was like, Chobi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> You're my only hope. And so I helped him out. You know, one of the problems is the network didn't like the name of the show Fresh Off the Boat. They thought it was racist. It was all, it was all white people, too. You know, you know how sometimes when white people will get offended on our behalf? so adorable when they do that. It's like, oh, thanks, thanks. It seems like one of the uh, one of the big challenges for an entertainer like you is that you know you're a Korean American woman, and you are the most famous Korean American woman entertainer, at least in mainstream culture in the United States. <laughs> like I think there's probably some there's probably some Korean American K-pop superstars. Mm -hmm. But uh here in the United States in mainstream culture, you're at the top of that pile mm -hmm. and there aren't a lot of other Korean Americans, much less Korean American women mm -hmm. uh that are broadly known. Mm -hmm. That is a great opportunity because you get a chance to, you know, you get a chance to speak for yourself and speak for people that would not might not otherwise have a voice, but on the other hand, it seems like a, a real hassle. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just really grateful that I've able to have such a long career and, and enjoy that, you know, and I was so different when I kind of burst on the scene. And now I've inspired a lot of other comedians of Asian descent to go and pursue their dreams, which is great because a lot of Asian Americans don't necessarily go into the arts because they want to please their families first. And so they go into these careers that they don't want in their mid-30s. They're very disappointed and upset. And so I've encouraged people to sort of bypass pleasing your parents, which is really a good thing. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm really happy about like what I've been able to accomplish and really excited to see the new generation. I, I imagine that sometimes, though, especially 20 years ago, there must have been a lot of situations where you felt like, man, you know, I wish that I could just speak for myself mm -hmm. because I have this really weird, personal, unusual experience in life. Mm -hmm. And everything that I do by nature of circumstance is extrapolated. Right. Well, it's, there's this like idea like, oh, do I have to be a comedian or a Korean comedian? Or do I have to be a comedian, a Korean-American comedian? Like, what does identity have to do with my art form? I think it's um, it's all sort of mixed in there. I mean, I don't know if I... I, I and then initially when I started, I really had to explain why I was there. Like, why is this Korean girl talking to me? <laughs> like, that was the main sort of hurdle that I had to get through with audiences and that sort of created a lot of my early comedy is the explanation of my presence but now since I've been around for a while I feel a little bit free from that but all of that still colors my experience You're listening to Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with comedian Margaret Cho I was just listening to a great episode of the MaximumFun.org podcast, Lady to Lady, that you were on. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you were talking about with the hosts of that show, who are all female stand-up comics, is that early in your career, one thing you had to deal with was that frequently, maybe even typically, when the MC would introduce you, bring you on stage, not only would you be introduced by your gender, mm -hmm. uh, which a male comic obviously wouldn't be, right. but also... 
when that gender came out or when the audience saw you, it would like let the air out of the room. Yeah. People would go, oh. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a woman. Oh. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> the worst. It's weird how that sort of misogyny that, that was sort of existed there. I don't know where they got it from because women comedians are so funny. Like that's never been an issue with women comics. Like I never ever thought women were any less powerful than a male comic, but they just had this assumption that and you know, that we were weaker or something. But then women have to be so much better anyway to sort of last in comedy. We have to really excel to go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the institutionalized sexism is such that if you're able to get ahead, it's because you're extra good. Right. It's it's You have to be pretty extraordinary to, to make a, a, any kind of waves, to, anything for anything to happen for you. One of the ways that you've dealt with this, and identity is always so huge in stand-up comedy, like the whether it's uh, whether it's the blue collar comedy tour mm-hmm. or Chris Hardwick is the nerdist mm-hmm. or whatever, just giving people some idea of who you are and what your perspective is in a very simple way is so central to bringing your comedy to people. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like one of the ways that you've been able to deal with this is through your queer identity, mm-hmm. that by joining this group of people who are in part, and I don't mean joining uh, biologically, I mean sort of publicly, mm-hmm. um, by joining this group of people who are in a way defined by this weird circumstance of their life, that they're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or gender nonconforming or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like a, it seems like a space where those other differences are either less important or it's a place for them to be celebrated. Yeah. I mean, that, that's um, one uh, one thing that I, I'm really I, – that's sort of my parents' sort of decision. My parents had a gay bookstore in the 70s, which is so unusual for Korean people to do. I don't think of any other instance where that's happened. But my father was very um, – very open about the gay community. He wanted to have a business in the gay community and to support them. And so I was introduced to all of these people who were very, very big followers of Harvey Milk, initial like sort of gay activists, like this first wave after Stonewall. And so this is an exciting environment to grow up in and, and then to do stand-up comedy. And then I identified as a lesbian initially when I became 18 and I thought, oh, I'm gay. I, I realized this is what sort of maybe made my sort of sense of like feeling different uh, valid. And then I realized a little later, oh, no, I actually am bisexual, too. So it was um, it was a really comfortable feeling to be within this community that accepted sexuality and then accepted beyond sexuality, all these different other aspects of yourself. At what point did you feel like and I don't know if this is even the case now, but at what point did you feel like um you were, I don't know, at home in your sense of self? I think um, either uh, probably in my late 20s, like after I had done television, had a sort of very famous failure and then went back to do stand-up comedy. Um, it, it was very... Uh, it was very apparent to me that I was on the right path, you know, and that I I felt um, really proud of my work and that I didn't need any kind of institution to endorse it. Like I didn't need sort of the greater the realm of television to say this is OK, this is good. I, I was able to kind of be self sort of standalone, self-functioning kind of uh, entity. And so I think that's probably when I felt really 
like I'm okay, I'm good. After your after your sitcom uh, after your sitcom was canceled, did you feel like it was a failure? Oh yes, I felt very disappointed, and I felt very hopeless. Like I think there was this idea, like oh, you've got this one shot, and you've got to, you know, make it. And and uh, it was it was very frustrating. But then when I went back to the clubs, and I realized, oh, I have this whole new following. I have all this new material. It's it just became very fulfilling in a different way. We have even more with Margaret Cho after a break. Plus, still to come, cartoonist and author Lisa Hanawalt. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Anti-Records with Mavis Staples' new album, If All I Was Was Black. This is Mavis's third collaboration with songwriter and producer and Wilco frontman Jeff Tweedy and marks the first time Tweedy has composed an entire album of original songs for Mavis's legendary voice and a nation she's uniquely poised to address. If All I Was Was Black is available now at Amazon.com. Five, four, space. It used to be the playground of governments, but now rockets and satellites are becoming so small, so cheap, that even a podcast can do it. We have ignition. I'm Robert Smith, and starting November 29th, the Planet Money team launches their very own satellite into the cosmos. Listen on NPR One or that app you're using right now. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian, actor, and musician Margaret Cho. If you're in Europe, you can catch her live as part of her Fresh Off the Bloat tour. It's happening now. Did you feel like you were happy to make your career as a stand-up comic after you had... Uh, you had not been able to make your career as a sitcom star. Yes, absolutely. I was so um, I was so happy about that. You know that I could still do that, and that it was just as fulfilling, if not as financially lucrative. It was still very um, thrilling and important to me. So that was that was a good thing, and I still feel that to some extent, even though I want to do other things like television and music and writing and different stuff, I, I still really am grateful for stand-up, and that's what I think will always be my life. I, I want to play a clip of uh, you have recently there's been uh, a lot of demand for Korean-American actors uh, to play either Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, <laughs> the uh, dynastic dictators of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've gotten in on the game in a couple of different contexts. Yes. Um, I want to play a clip from 30 Rock, which is one of my favorite shows. And so in this scene, you're playing Kim Mm -hmm. Jong-il. And Liz Lemon, who's Tina Fey, the main character in the show, basically just runs into a cater waiter at a wedding who she thinks it looks very suspiciously like not a cater waiter, but rather the North Korean dictator. (laughs) Excuse me, lady, you do the vow? You know, speak now or forever hold your peace, but... Oh, my God, are you? No, I'm nobody. Kim Jong-il is dead. I'm only waiter. I'm greatest waiter of all time. (laughs) (laughs) So here's my question about uh, portraying the brutal, evil dictators of North Korea. Mm -hmm. What is your take on doing that? Why do it? Why do it the way that you do it? Well, I, I just um, copying members of my family. Part of my family who are brutal dictators. They're, br- they're not brutal dictators, <laughs> but they do have. Uh, they are of Korean descent and North Korean descent too. I mean, from the Korea that 
was united at one point. And so it's a way to get back at this really terrible entity that I mean, they, 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 they've separated my family for now 66 years and we don't know what's happened to them and we don't know what's going on over there. And it's the only way to maybe lighten up this very tragic situation. How do you feel about uh, the fact that given the relative paucity of Koreans in the media, that for a lot of Americans, it might be the only representation they get Mm -hmm. of a Korean person? Well, we're glad to do it. I'm excited. Like, I I think, (laughs) oh, I'm like different. You know, I'm in a generation where I'm just so grateful for everything that I have. You know, now that uh, the younger generation can maybe have more, but more representation and more freedom. Um, I'll just do anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good answer. Yeah, yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the stand-up comedian, actor, and musician, Margaret Cho. And just a heads up, if you're listening with kids, we're about to talk about sexuality for a few minutes. Not explicitly, but just, just, just in case you need to know. Let's hear another song from my guest Margaret Cho's album, American Myth. This song's called... Ron's got a DUI. Describe this song as a tribute to the older gay guys in your life, especially when you were young. Yes, because they would always end up being the default babysitter. These different guys, um, a lot of them were getting sick. This is the first wave of, of people really realizing that AIDS was deadly. And so, you know, you witnessed all of these very, very healthy, beautiful young men suddenly become very sick and very old, and then you didn't see them anymore. So this song is really about that generation, this missing rung of gay men that we don't have. Like, there's just, like, a whole, like, age group that is lost. And so during the creation of this video, I made an AIDS quilt panel that um, sort of represents these men that uh, will go on to the larger AIDS quilt when um, it's in Grace Cathedral now in San Francisco. So I'll sew it on when it gets um, to a different place. But I, I just wanted a tribute to them because we don't really think about that whole generation of men who died. Was there anyone in particular that you would tell us about? I think Frank Ranzano. He was my father's favorite employee, and he was—he looked like a cowboy, and uh, he would often sort of just be around, like you know, kind of watching over me. And then, just the thought of him 
piercing, you know, this incredibly virile, like strong cowboy kind of majestic man getting sicker and sicker. And then he was gone. And then the owner also of um, Josie's juice joint, Ron, uh, his his name is in the song. He he passed away. Also, it's very, it's all very shocking to me still because I react to their deaths like a child would. How's that? It's like a, I don't. I need to be explained what death is. You know, like I still like their deaths came before anybody told me what death was, and I still have a hard time comprehending it. There is in uh, in places where there were uh, a lot of uh, gay people living as gay and especially gay men, um, like San Francisco and New York in the 70s and 80s, there is this this almost like a tear in the timeline between the, you know, in the, in the 1980s mostly up until the antiretrovirals made ex- started extending people's lives. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible dislocation. Right. And then also the culture that was them just coming from all these small towns and going to San Francisco and New York and suddenly being allowed to be themselves. Not only is it great to be gay, it's phenomenal. And all of these beautiful men together, and they're all sort of dressed up in like the little outfits, like the village people, literally, you know, this this kind of party happening all the time. And I think that was the first time that I witnessed sexuality that felt safe to me because I wasn't involved at all, that i had had a lot of sexual abuse and, and difficulty as a very young kid. And so to see sexuality, especially male sexuality, played out in front of me that didn't include me, that wasn't threatening, I think it was very healing to see. As a young person who was trying to figure out your own identity, what kind of effect did it have on you to see people who basically had come from all around the world to celebrate who they were. I think it made me feel very safe uh, that being different was safe and that being gay was a privilege, that it was something that held you in um, sort of a higher honor and that you were able to experience the better nature, the better side of people and the, the imaginative, colorful, playful, creative side as opposed to the sort of practical, like on the road to a family side, which I, I always really responded to. How do you feel about your career now in 2016? I like it. It's varied. It's different. Every day there's something else, you know, whether it's um, comedy or, or music or acting or TV commentary or whatever. It's, it's always very um, thrilling. You know, I'm able to do different things that challenge me and also enjoying social media, which is also very weird still to me that it exists. Do you enjoy social media? I do. I do to a certain extent, and then I get really mad at it also. Because <laughs> I, imagine, I, I imagine that you, you, as a public personality, would get a, let's say, a variety of reactions mm-hmm. on social media. Mm-hmm. And then I often engage in battles, which is not good for me, and it's not... <laughs> reasonable, but it's also kind of funny, too. Like, I, I think that uh, it's amazing what people will say, like, the the negativity and the, just the naked rage of people. And then when you engage with them, they, they, the sort of more comes out and then it sort of lessens. I don't know. I, I just feel so um, odd about it in, and also grateful for it, but then not. I don't know. I can't even figure out, like, could you imagine in the 90s if you could just reach out to 
Evan Dando about <laughs> what he was doing. Like, to me, celebrity used to be such a, a sort of uncrossable river to sort of another world. that was like literal river sticks. And now there, there seems to be a drought. There's no water in it. <laughs> Do you feel secure in your career now? Do you feel comfortable in it? Yeah, I think so. But then you also don't, you know, you never do exactly. So there's like this eternal hunger to to want to strive for more. Um, I am not at a level of uh, success that I would like to, I'd like to be more, but then I, I couldn't really, I don't know what I, else I could ask for exactly. So um, I just, I'm conflicted, but that I, I enjoy the dailiness of it, the differences in the um, social life that I have around it, too, because everybody I work with is my friend. Well, Margaret, I'm so grateful that you took the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. So great. Thank you so much. Margaret Cho from last year. She just wrapped up the U.S. part of her Fresh Off the Bloat tour. She's headed abroad to Scotland, the Netherlands, and beyond. If you want to see dates, head to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying a couple of our favorite Bullseye interviews. Next on the show, Lisa Hanawalt from last year. When we talked, she just released her book, Hot Dog Taste Test. In one of the comics from the book, she is commiserating with a cousin, and they both love children, but they don't want their own children, and they feel like adult children themselves. Hanawalt's work is full of childlike energy. She's obsessed with animals, especially horses, also animal-human hybrids. She loves food. She loves to play. One of the most memorable images in the book is a technicolor feast of fanciful foods. Give it a second as you look. It sinks in. The table is actually a galloping dog. Hanawalt also produces and runs the visual elements of the hit Netflix animated show BoJack Horseman, where people and animals live together in a kind of weird, hyper-real version of Hollywood. Here's a little bit from the show's second season. Lisa plays the voice of a chicken who has escaped the slaughterhouse. Todd who's voiced by Aaron Paul, covers for her when a police officer comes to ask some questions. The police officer, by the way, is a cat. What seems to be the problem, officer? Fuzzy face. Meow, meow, fuzzy face. A chicken for days chicken fell off the back of a truck, and now i got to find her and take her back to the slaughterhouse. You haven't seen any extra chickens running around, have you? No, I don't think so. Who's this? Uh, this is my, uh, my, my wife. Becca! Becca, yeah, my wife Becca. Becca Chavez. Okay. There she is. <laughs> yep, she loves her books. Big reader. <laughs> Real nerd. Becca! Back off. Okay. I'm sorry, honey. Hold on. If you're really a nerd, who's your favorite Baroque composer? Bach. Bach? Not Vivaldi? You're insane. Bic. Yes, I am holding a big pen, but I don't see how that's relevant, Mrs. Chavez. Bic. Sorry, Becca. She's a charming woman. <laughs> Lisa also hosts MaximumFun.org's podcast, Baby Geniuses. Uh, Lisa, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that I played your, was that your acting debut on the show? It was, yeah, my voice acting debut. Um, did they, <laughs> so did you have, tell me about the audition for that role. Um, I actually read it at a table read. 
Was um, it just like was it just like they just needed someone to make chicken noises? Well, Raphael is a good friend of mine. He's a creator of the show and he happens to know that I love making chicken noises. <laughs> Um, ever since we first became friends in high school, I loved making chicken noises. So, uh, yeah, he used that skill of mine. <laughs> um, it does speak to one of the special things about BoJack Horseman. And it's something that I think you've had a lot of influence in, mm-hmm. which is the weird and specific relationships between uh the animal qualities of the animal characters and the human qualities of the animal characters. Yeah. Was the idea for the show always that uh, it would be animals and people living together, but the animals would only mostly act like people? Yes. Um, you know, it was Raphael's idea, but it also was partly inspired by these drawings I was doing of animals dressed up in people clothing. And I think for us, it's it's really fun if you almost start to forget that they're animals and how weird that is. And then they do something that reminds you, like there's a background <laughs> gag or, uh, yeah, a chicken will make a chicken noise or drop an egg. Um, <laughs> that to me is just like endlessly funny. They, I mean, the show really is full of details like that. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of the details are visual. Yes. Um, how did that end up happening? Well, it's a combination, you know, it's a very collaborative project. So it's partly me. I just love details. I like things that make people take a second look. And, you know, especially since it's on Netflix and you can just rewatch it endlessly um, without waiting for it to air again, you can really catch a lot of those background gags. Um, and then also our director, Mike Collingsworth, it loves animals and loves puns and gags. And so he puts a lot of those in. Um, I feel like you know, everyone who works on this show, that's an interest we all share. Do you have, is there something, is there like a t-shirt that you created that you're particularly proud of that was on a character or an animal thing that an animal did that you're particularly proud of? Oh, there's one shirt that's uh, like, save a bike, ride a tree. (laughs) And I don't even know what exactly I'm making fun of with that, but it's very funny to me. And a lot of (laughs) people have made their own versions of that shirt since seeing on the show. Um, I so you host a, you host a show in our podcast network uh, called Baby Geniuses. So you're around the office once in a while. Yeah. And maybe a year or two ago, um, you shared with me this email that you'd gotten. Oh yeah. Uh, about BoJack Horseman, the title character of BoJack Horseman, and maybe before we get into the content of that email, maybe you could describe the character. You know, just just aesthetically. Well, he's a horseman, and he's wearing a sweater and uh, a suit jacket and jeans and Converse. And he's maybe a little overdressed for Hollywood living. <laughs> so, yeah. so what was the concern that was raised in this email? Because well, I've been obsessed with it ever since. If you're describing the email, I think you are. Um, I am. The concern <laughs> is that there are no tails on the show. <laughs> um, and that was something we considered, but... You know, I will say, yeah, it was from a furry gentleman. He was a member of the furry community, and furries happen to really love tails. So quite a few of them are really upset by the lack of tails. It's like, you know, like the show is like so close to something they they want, like their dream, and then it fails in this huge area. They were really disappointed. Well, the fur- I mean, the furry community is a really remarkable thing. It is both completely ridiculous but, yeah, in some ways, yeah. But also, like, really lovely. Yeah. Like, a really lovely community that's built on, you know, this 
shared passion and just the idea yeah. of creating your own identity. And I must say, I think I am a furry by d- the definition of furry, which is that I like I like to envision myself as an animal a lot of the time and put myself in the you know pretend what it would be like to be an animal. What was amazing to me about this email was it wasn't just <laughs> could it what the the quality of it was not just. Could you please? No, it was not a polite email. It was it was like it was like really it, I mean, it was amusing because it was so entitled. It was just like, no, I really do think that for the betterment of the show, you should go back into animation and add in tales and then re-release the show. It really read like someone had created a spreadsheet. Yeah. And and an equation that determined right or wrong should a tail be on an animal. Yeah. And the answer had come out yes. And they were doing you a favor by letting you know. Yeah. I mean, I did respond and I got into it with him about, you know, well, do you understand animation budgets and schedules? This would be really difficult to add back in the tails as if that was ever a consideration. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, he was he was a little disappointed. And that makes me sad. But, you know, you can't please everyone. When you graduated from school with a degree in studio art, did you think that your career was going to be uh, drawing pictures (laughs) of weird food? And animals being born out of flowers? No, I didn't. I mean, I guess I I thought maybe I'd be doing large-scale paintings of animals coming out of flowers. (laughs) (laughs) And that I would have, like, a solo show in Chelsea of that subject matter. Um, But that hasn't happened quite yet. I'm I'm getting to it. (laughs) How did did it come to be that that became your career? I just kept doing it. You know, when I graduated college, I had a secretary job that I worked two years. But in all my free time, I was making a lot of comics and I started getting illustration work based on those comics. And yeah, it's it's led me to all kinds of interesting places. Lisa, would you read something from the book? Yeah. This is a piece that you originally wrote for the magazine Lucky Peach, right? Yes, it's a food magazine, and they um, asked me to be a regular contributor. Um, And this particular issue was about breakfast. So this piece is called Your Breakfast Questions Answered. Question. What is an egg? Answer. A temporary home. What is a sausage? Pieces from a bunch of pigs. What is orange juice? Fruit blood. How do you feel? Ready for the day. Any other questions? No. <laughs> we should say, like, sure, like you're, uh, you know, you're a comics artist who's uh, been hired to create art for Lucky Peach. That is literally just a list that you've written on a piece of paper, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Artfully. I, I think... When I'm making pieces like this, I get into kind of this manic persona where I play real fast and loose with syntax and grammar, um, and that just makes it funnier to me. There's one sentence I wrote in here uh, on one page. There was a study to not skip breakfast, and it, makes, <laughs> it really makes me laugh because <laughs> you kind of get what I mean, but there's a lot of information missing. It's kind of like a, a messed up child wrote it or... Yeah. <laughs> when you were you uh were you excited to get a job where you had to regularly write about food? Yeah, but not just because I like food, but because I I figured food is such a huge topic that I could really explore the outer reaches of what that even means. Like Did, in in one of these pieces I go and I swim with baby otters and the editor was like, "Well, you just, you know, add a sentence in there about what they eat and that'll be fine." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of extra focus on tilapia fillets. Yeah. I mean, they they ate up those fish super fast. It was really fun to watch. What is it like to swim with otters? Um, it's delightful. They're How... actually they're a lot like my dog, but there's many of them and they're small and they're wet and they're really hyper and they're just swimming all around my body. And we should explain that ordinary otters are not something you should swim with. No. They're usually pretty fierce. They're carnivores. They'll try and, like, bite you. Yeah. One of them did bite me a little bit and then was reprimanded by the trainer. (laughs) He, like, took the otter and was like, no, no. (laughs) I don't know if the otter learned anything. (laughs) They don't seem to have a conscience. (laughs) That's another animal I'd really like to be is an otter. I think that would probably be the most fun. Because it's psychopathic? Yeah, they're a little bit psychopathic, and they just seem to have fun all day. You're also completely obsessed with horses. Yeah, I am. I wish I wasn't. <laughs> I can't help it. How long have you been obsessed with horses? I've always liked them. And uh, then when I started taking riding lessons when I was eight, it like bloomed into this full-blown ex- obsession. I mean, that is like 60% of eight, eight-year-old girls. That is yeah. their ultimate number one dream, at least, at least when I was an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. And, and there's eight-year-old boys who ride horses too. I'm not saying, but there's a... I remember when I was in elementary school, there was a group of girls from my class, probably six, Mm -hmm. who basically at recess had meetings (laughs) about horses, (laughs) and then they would gallop around the playground. Yeah, I was a galloper. I I had uh, holes in the knees of all of my jeans because I was crawling around so much. You were galloping on all fours? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I was a horse. I had to be. Oh, wow. Because the galloping that was going on at my elementary school was more like. They were riding. They were, they were riding, but they were doing gallopy leg motions. Yeah. There's like a deeper level of horse girl, I would uh-huh. say, that I was in, which is where you're getting calluses on your knees and the tops of your feet because you're actually crawling so much. How long <laughs> did you impersonate a horse in this manner? Um, I did it until I was about to go into middle school and my brother sat me down and said, you know what, when you go into middle school, you can't do this anymore because it's really embarrassing and people are going to make fun of you. So you have to stop. (laughs) And so I stopped. Wow, that's heavy. I know, but he was right. (laughs) You can't be doing that in middle school. That's a battleground. (laughs) You need to get your together. More with Lisa Hanawalt in a minute after a short break. We're going to end it on a high note. Enough about otters and chickens and other cute animals. Lisa Hanawalt talks with me about death. It's our signature subject. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple, royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Lisa Hanawalt, is a cartoonist and author. She works on the Netflix series BoJack Horseman. She co-hosts the podcast Baby Geniuses over here at Maximum Fun. I want to play a song from your podcast, Baby Geniuses. (laughs) 
Um, there are recurring po- there are recurring segments on the podcast. They have theme songs. My guest is Lisa Hanawalt. Um, and this song is about a particular horse who's a sort of leitmotif on the show. <laughs> leitmotif. Lunch. When the clock strikes noon, we can have a picnic lunch, find one full moon, and we're chatting about chunch. Ben chunch. Uh, who is Ban Chunch, or what is Ban Chunch? Well, it started out as Ben Chunch, and it's the name of a pony that Martha Stewart bought for her grandchildren. And her grandchildren named the pony Ben Chunch. And I thought that was really funny, and I kind of locked onto that as a detail to the point where I was just repeating the words Ben Chunch over and over to myself and laughing. <laughs> um, and so now anytime there's any news about Ben Chunch, I tweet about it and we have, you know, we discuss it on the podcast. Um, but she also, the name keeps changing the way they spell it on her blog in updates. So it changed to Ban Chunch. Sometimes it's Ban Chunch one word. Um, and yeah, it's a real mystery. I feel kind of like Sarah Koenig on Serial. Like, I'm just constantly trying to find out new information about this horse. And you're sort of narrating your experience and your process, the feelings that you're processing as you learn new information. Yeah. Mostly mostly respect for Martha mixed in with some frustration at not being able to fully understand her decisions at all times. Okay. So what, give me an example of what frustrates you about uh, Ban Chunch, the former Ben Chunch, <laughs> and Martha Stewart, the legendary lifestyle guru. Just that the name would change, and I'm not sure why. And I've tried to contact, like, the barn manager to get uh, answers, and I can't quite get a straight answer. And um, Did I, you get a sideways answer? Um, just that it was—I got the answer that it was supposed to be Banchunch, but it was originally misspelled as Benchunch. But then recently in an interview, Martha Stewart went back to calling him Benchunch. Um and there's just a lot of side details about, like, where the pony came from, the fact that he used to be named Patrick Stewart, I find really interesting. <laughs> um, she got another pony and named it Harrison Ford. Uh, I noticed that because I was confused as to whether the <laughs> whether the pony was called Ben Chunch or Ban Chunch. Yeah. Because I had remembered when it was called Ben Chunch, but then I had been listening and you were talking <laughs> about Ban Chunch. Yeah, you have to keep up. It changes a and lot. So I Googled it, and, and the <laughs> article that I read on Martha Stewart's blog was about Harrison Ford coming to live with them. Yeah, that's the new one. Uh, which is a pony. A Shetland pony. But this is a fell pony, which is slightly larger. She has all sizes of horse, and they're all jet black. And they're, they all look like copies of each other, but slightly smaller every time. Do you think that's one of those things, like how she encourages people to mix and match tableware? Yeah, I think it is similar. I think that's just how her brain works. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty great. She has to have all her animals sort of coordinated. Were you social as a kid or were you uh, a sitter in the corner and drawer? I was a sitter in the corner, but I always had a couple like really good friends who would draw with me or pretend to be an animal with me. Who did you convince to be an animal with you? Uh, like I had a couple of best friends who were like just down to get all dirty. <laughs> crawl around <laughs> you know what other types other, of other, animals besides other horses? tomboys oh there was a while where i had a game where we pretended we were a squirrel family that was a big one which member of the squirrel family were you um i was the husband i was the the breadwinner oh interesting yeah 
Was that about your feelings of needing to be responsible for everything? I don't know. This is like a therapy session. I love it. I know. <laughs> now look at this ink blot and tell me what it reminds you of. <laughs> a, hor- a horse. <laughs> I didn't even look at it. <laughs> yes, we've it's di- just what I was already thinking. <laughs> we've diagnosed you with horseophilia. You love horses. <laughs> Thank you. You've got horse fever. Here's a check. <laughs> horse fever is probably a terrible disease that some of our listeners suffer from. I apologize. <laughs> Tuca is a toucan character that you created. Yes. Can you tell me about Tuca? Uh, Tuca, I feel like, is my id in some ways. She's kind of like what I would be like if I had no sort of sense of shame or embarrassment. She's a very loud, brassy toucan lady who wears short shorts. And gets into all sorts of scrapes. Can you give me an example of a situation where it was like, a, you know, the kind of brassiness that you would imagine for yourself but uh, might not have in real life? Uh, there's a part where Tuca goes swimsuit shopping and uh, she finds a top she likes and then she just wanders out of the fitting room without any bottoms on. She's like, <laughs> oh, I got a top. Got to find some bottoms. And she just doesn't care that her butt's hanging out. <laughs> You know, stuff stuff like that, which is, you know, it was inspired by me swimsuit shopping, but I didn't do it quite like that. Why and how is she a toucan? I just think animals with really long noses are good characters. So I've (laughs) drawn comics about a moose and about a horse and now a toucan. I just I, I also saw a documentary where toucans were stealing the eggs of other birds and eating them. And I like how they they kind of toss their whole head up in the sky and then gobble up the food. It's just very brassy. Do you ever watch uh, nature documentaries like on Netflix and imagine storylines for all of the animals that are on screen? Yeah, a lot of them. Although a lot of them, they'll make up their own storylines just to keep people engaged in the documentary. They sort of project a lot of human storylines onto the animals. Yeah, give me a break. That. I like. Yeah, I, I say I want to make my own. Yeah. I want to have a, like an ongoing conversation with the text. Yeah. <laughs> Can you read another piece from your book here? Um, Lisa Hanawalt, my guest. The book is called Hot Dog Taste Test. Um, Lisa, why don't you read this passage here? All right. This piece is called What Will It Be Like to Die? We used to play this game in high school where we'd run back and forth, and if you got lifted off the ground, you were out. It was brutal. I was small, and I could last a while by darting, but eventually I'd get scooped up. I was a terrible sport, and I didn't want to get tagged out. I drew myself yelling, no, that's what I think death will feel like. And then there's a gravestone and it says, I want to keep playing. (laughs) Um, It's a pretty brutal combination of death and child feelings. Yeah. Do you think about death? Yeah, a lot. Are you religious? No. Yeah, me either. (laughs) <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I, I hear religion comes in handy when you're thinking about death. But I'm an atheist, so instead there's just nothing. What do you think about when you think about death? Um, I think a lot about how it'll be okay. You know, I'll finally, you know, in some ways it's appealing. It's like, oh, you'll get to just kind of let go because it won't matter. Nothing will matter. Um, But then it's like, well, why am I doing all this stuff? <laughs> Um, and then I think about the people who be left behind. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Uh, once Ira Glass talked about, on This American Life, talked about being afraid of death. It was so nice to hear someone talk frankly about fear mm-hmm. of death. 
and I mentioned it to my wife and, you know, I don't, I, 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 I don't want to speak for my wife's religious convictions, but she's a, you know, agnostic anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, she's not afraid of death at all. Um, and I believe her, she's my wife. She's pretty frank with me. <laughs> and, um. That must be so nice to not be afraid. I know. And she, she said to me, well, I wasn't, I feel like I wasn't bothered before I was born. It was fine. Yeah. And that was kind of an amazing thought to me. It did not stick. I won't make that clear. <laughs> it stuck rhetorically, but not emotionally. I'm still terrified of death. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a. It's... The, the thought of not existing is profoundly disturbing to most people, I think. it's But it's just like a primary drive. Like, I must exist. I must propagate. Well, and I think there's also a secondary drive, especially if you're an artist, which is I must make some kind of mark. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's a similar drive to people having children. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's like I must do as much as possible, partly because I'm just excited. There's like a lot of stuff I want to do and I'll just be bummed out if I don't get to do it. What have you not done that you would like to do? Um, well, like right now I'm directing a music video and I've always wanted to do that more than anything in the world. So that's exciting. More than anything in the world? Well, just like, well, there's a lot of stuff I want to do, but it's like the one thing that was really on my list of like things I want to do with my art that I haven't done before that I think would be challenging. I mean, to be fair, you got to swim with those otters. Yeah, I didn't even know that that was a thing I wanted. Yeah, you, the... well, you introduced it to me, and now it's all I can think about. Well, you can do it. I saw a picture of Kyle Kinane doing it. Yeah. <sighs> that guy. If he gets to do it, you should get to do it. I know! <laughs> He's already the voice of Comedy Central. I auditioned for that and didn't get it. <laughs> now he's swimming with otters and I don't get to? Come on, Kinane. You can sign up for their 2016 season of otter swimming. He's also significantly funnier than me. He's pretty funny. <laughs> he's one of the funniest guys ever. He's a very good stand-up. He's hilarious. <laughs> oh, those otters. <laughs> Really, all I want to do is just talk more about these otters. They raised their prices recently. Really? How much does it cost to swim with otters? I think now it's 300 per person, but it is like a full, it's like a half day of being with animals because they have a whole, you know, a, like place with tons of animals. There's and this like is a kangaroo a, and there's armadillos and like. And this is a nonprofit. This is not a, this isn't some kind of uh, like weird roadside attraction. No, no. They they raise money for, for children and children in need and yeah it's great what other good animals was there there um they had a sloth that you could touch oh what does a sloth feel like it's uh pretty bristly i would say Mm -hmm. but i got to feed it um a banana what did it just grab the banana and stuff it in its face i mean it's it's so slow moving you kind of have to put the banana in its mouth and then push it in with your finger (laughs) (laughs) every animal on that property ate banana that's like what fuels the entire establishment. Wow. All wild animals love bananas. Well, Lisa Hanawalt, it's been a joy and a delight to have you <laughs> on the show. I'm sorry that I wasted so much of your time on NPR talking about otters. Oh, no, no apology needed. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Lisa Hanawalt from last year, her book, Hot Dog Taste Test, is still available. It is so, I can't even tell you how great it is. It is so funny and amazing. Bojack Horseman is in its fourth season right now. It's still going strong on Netflix. And if you haven't heard Lisa's podcast, Baby Genius, it's definitely give it a listen and subscribe. You won't be sad you did. 
Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. When you think of a great basketball player, what do you think of? Probably somebody like Michael Jordan, guy who can do incredible things every time the ball's in his hand, guy making beautiful moves, seems like he's on roller skates, like he can change direction in midair, guy who seems to have been born into basketball. I get that. What you probably don't think of is a second-round draft pick, a tweener, guy who's only kind of powerful, kind of tall, but not tall enough to be really tall, and kind of big, but not big enough to be really big, not particularly graceful, a guy who always looks like he's trying super hard. I like that second guy. That's Draymond Green. Attacking Iguodala. Beautiful strip. Warriors with numbers. And Clay Thompson finishes off the assist from Draymond, who now has back-to-back triple-doubles. Stephen Curry gets the press on the Golden State Warriors. And for good reason. He is incredible. NBA MVP, and deservingly so, does things no one's done before. But I love Draymond, the guy who does things everyone's done before. Green plays center sometimes, even though he's a bit small for a power forward. He fights for rebounds. He takes a charge. He shoots a three. Great passer. Posts up a guy who's a half a foot taller than him. Works every angle. And Draymond Green talking trash to LeBron James. Not a good idea. <laughs> Showing you immaturity there. Don't get him fired up. Draymond talks a lot of mess on the floor. He flexes his muscles when things go right, and he yells and screams when they don't. Curry's kind of sweet and cool. Draymond always runs hot. I like it that way. Watching Green play is such a joy. Black athletes rarely get credit for being smart and gutsy, especially if they're showy while they're doing it or if they aren't deferential to the press. But all Draymond is is smart and gutsy. He's always in the right place, always getting better, always diving and scrapping and fighting, always stretching and passing and looking to help every other warrior on the floor. Good defense from Smith. Green tries to pull in, banks it in, and a foul. Smith initially with the stop, but Green kept at him and a chance for a three-point play. Draymond Green launches a three, puts it in. Look, there's something to be said for a beautiful reverse, a sweet step-back three, a gorgeous fadeaway. I love graceful basketball, too. But let's hear it for another kind of guy, a fighter who picks his punches, a tough guy with brains, the kind of guy we could maybe almost imagine ourselves being if we had the heart to work harder and study more, and if we never, ever, 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 ever stopped scrapping. Yeah, so let's hear it for Draymond Green, lunch pail superstar. He's a magnificent player. He just plays very intelligently. He is the heart and soul of their team. Steph Curry is the engine that makes him run, but this guy does everything else, all of the intangibles. And you can see the Warriors bench. They know that he just needs one more point for a triple-double, and they... Gave him the post up, and the Warriors bench loves it. But you know what? That's what happens when you win. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Shout out to our neighbor, Doña Bibis, a.k.a. Antojitos BB, a.k.a. Bibis Cafe on 7th Street right by the park. Great Honduran restaurant 
my colleagues Christian and Kevin recommend some baleadas with a passion fruit agua fresca to wash it down. Show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Thanks to Jesus Ambrosio for helping this week. Our senior producer at MaximumFun.org is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team. It's provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 